you're uh, visiting, just super glad that you're with us this morning. Um, we just love to teach the scriptures and worship Jesus, so that's what we're going to continue to do. We did it as you uh, just witnessed through singing. We also love to do it by uh, teaching out of this book, which we believe is, is God's gift to us. It's his written word to us of all we need to know uh, for life and godliness, so we're, we're thankful to have it. We, we treasure this word as a gift uh, that God didn't have to give, but he gives it to us to know more about him, and primarily so that you'll see more of his personal work in what his son Jesus has done. So uh, before we just get, get rolling in, one of the things that, that happens here is this is uh, not just a church, but it, it's a family. So you'll see uh, in the scriptures, God talk about the family of God. He'll talk about how he adopts you into a new family, how you go from an enemy of God to a son of God or a daughter of God. And so when, when local churches kind of birth themselves, and there's different local churches kind of all over, this is uh, just a local assembly of a local family that, that gets together. So it's more than just a random group of people that show up on Sunday, but people that actually want to do life and bear burdens together. So um, we want to pray for and love each other well when, when things arise. So um, I just wanted to take a minute to, to pray for John and Kaylee. There's nothing really serious. You know that they had Max, right? A couple weeks ago, he's been in the NICU, precious little boy. Uh, just been some minor complications with his heart and things like that. So uh, he wrote, asked me if we would just pray collectively for them. Uh, it's a joy for us to do that because uh, the, he's a part of our family. He's a part of uh, this church. So uh, let's just ask God to be gracious to Max, to protect and preserve Max, and then uh, we'll dive into Luke chapter 10. God, thank you uh, that you're a God who's a healer. Uh, that, thank you that you give, sustain, and end life. Um, so God, thank you that we trust you as the author of life. Um, thank you for the gift that Max is to Jono and Kaylee. Thank you for uh, gifting them to us as a brother and sister of Jesus. And God, we pray even now that you would just continue to keep that little heart beating, uh, that God, the minor fluctuations and dips would be of nothing uh, to be concerned, but you'd sustain him, keep him healthy, keep his oxygen levels right, um, and more importantly, continue to build into Kaylee and Jono the things that you are building into them through this uh, walking alongside their new son. Uh, God, thank you for the, the many moms in this congregation that are going to be giving birth soon. We continue to pray even preservation among them um, for health and good pregnancies and deliveries and that these children would grow to love you and honor you and worship you and make your name famous. Um, God, would you speak this morning? Would you give us humble hearts to receive the truth and good activity and conviction to follow? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 10. Go to Luke chapter 10. Um, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own a Bible, please keep that. That's our gift to you just so you can uh, study along with us. We've been going through the, the gospel according to Luke um, for the last, actually we're going to hit a year, I think, uh, in like two weeks. I can't believe it's been a year in Luke. And we're finally in Luke 10. We're in Luke 10 this morning. I'm glad you guys are still alert on Sunday and hungry and eager to learn. Um, I hope you've been uh, as encouraged as I've been just walking through this beautiful book, just hopefully a Hopefully us really getting a good kind of firm handle uh, on the gospel of Luke and, and what he's saying and his purpose in writing. And um, we said last week, Luke chapter 9 is a, a big chapter, which we just wrapped up, which is basically uh, the big door hinge of Luke, which is him turning his face towards Jerusalem. So all the while we've been looking at his arrival, we saw the announcement from the angels to the shepherds, to Mary, to Zechariah. We saw John the Baptist make the announcement of Jesus as he kind of comes in as the itinerant preacher leading up to Jesus. And so um, Jesus comes 
comes, then continues to announce that he's here. We see him get up and give his first sermon in Luke chapter 4 out of Isaiah, and he kind of talks about how um, he's here for the spiritually poor, the spiritually blind, the spiritually oppressed by sin, who realize that there is nothing they can do to enter this kingdom of God, this language we're going to keep hearing, and it can only be done through a preserving work, a work that he will do in the future when he's giving this sermon of his death and resurrection. So we've just been watching Jesus heal, raise to life, cure. He's basically announcing that the kingdom is here. And so now what's happening is he's turning his face towards Jerusalem to die. Okay, so the tone of Luke gets a lot more somber, a lot more serious. There's more hatred that's going to bubble up, more volatile nature of the Pharisees, religious establishments. So you're going to see that shift happen and keep happening. And so um, this morning we're going to, it's funny it being Palm Sunday, um, this, this Palm Sunday, this Palm Sunday, for those of you that aren't aware of that. It represents basically the, the, the passion week of Jesus. It's his last week um, of his earthly life where he will ultimately uh, go to Jerusalem. He enters the city on Palm Sunday and then on Good Friday he is carried to the cross and then he is risen from the dead on Easter Sunday. So um, awesome that we land today in Luke chapter 10 on Palm Sunday because this is where he's going to commission and send out the 72 as he sets his face to Jerusalem letting them know that he's arriving. Okay, let them know that he's coming. And so um, it's a beautiful text, and I think it will uh, bring some uh, also serious encouragement and challenge as well. So uh, this whole commissioning, I think, goes through like verse 24. We're just going to go through verse 11, this, or verse probably 12 this morning, and then we'll continue the rest uh, after Easter. Um, so here he is commissioning the 72. Let me just say this. Look, there is, there is debate all over the map on whether it was 70 or 72, okay? So you'll find scholars who, if you got like an NASB or King James, you probably have 70. If you got an ESV, uh, the real standard version, the, the, the vine one, then you've got, you know, the 72, which I believe is, is the right one. So here, listen, regardless, add to or take away to, you know what's encouraging? That he sends this many to preach the gospel, okay? So, so let's, just, let's just dive in. I just, I wanna get that out of the way. So the whole rest of the sermon, I'm going, I don't know, man, I think it's 70, okay? So I, I don't know if it is. Go study, send me an email and I'll delete it. Okay, so here's, here's what we do. Ready? Let's get to work. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. Okay, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So, so Jesus pulls together the 72 and he gets the 12 disciples that were already with him. And then he got the 60 others that were learners and followers of Jesus. There were people actually joining Jesus who were true disciples. Um, they believed his message. They believed he was the Messiah. They believed he was who he said he was. And so they, they, they joined ranks and he sends them out. He's going to commission them to go here and this is super common for the first century, okay? You got, when kings would kind of announce their arrival, what do they do? They send heralds out in front of them to tell everybody, okay? So these are basically the heralds announcing that the king is here, like the king is arisen, the king is, has arrived, and so he's arrived in its fullness, right, because it's Jesus, the king of the kingdom that they're announcing is here, he's present, he's on the earth. And so as Jesus is heading in and as he's making his announcement, he sends them out in twos, so he grabs these guys and goes, okay, you two go to this town, you two go to this city, you two go to this place, you two go here. And, and I think there's a lot of reasons he sends them in twos. I think the obvious one is in Deuteronomy you have that that's what validates a testimony. So if you've got guys going to a village who are saying, hey, I saw him preach, I saw him heal, he's the Messiah, they're going, well, why should I believe you? Well, I've got, we've got two witnesses. I mean, we're, we're testifying to this. This is validating our testimony. You also have probably, it's just efficient evangelistically, Right? 
I mean, let's send two out so more work gets accomplished, but not 10 so that no, nothing gets done. I think it's just kind of a good median, right? Let, let's have a good number, a small number that goes out. There's accountability, there's assistance, there's help, there's people walking together. I mean, you all know, how, how encouraging is it to have someone with you if you're in a discussion or a dialogue or you're talking about the things of God? I mean, that, that's super encouraging. So um, he sends them out rightly by teams of two to validate this message, and he says this, he says, Go because the harvest is plentiful, but laborers are few. I think it's super important to notice here. Jesus says this before. If you guys remember, he said this back in Matthew chapter 9 when he sends the 12 out, before he sends the 72. And, and you guys are probably real familiar with this because if you grew up in church, like this was the only text you read before a missions trip. It said he looked out on the harvest and saw the sheep who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd that he had compassion on them. Compassion's what drove Jesus to send laborers. And that word compassion is like deep aching in the bottom of your stomach. Like he ached with compassion. That's profound. I mean, he's sending out laborers and it's not just to, hey, fix a bunch of people. He is aching as he looks out and sees people perishing apart from his own saving work and he, and he says you need to go and go to the go to the harvest because it's plentiful and labors are few compassion drove jesus in his evangelism um if you're going to tell people about jesus you know it starts in your heart it doesn't start in how much you got your theological wallet right all the cards you want to zing out i mean i see this all the time where where people are like i don't really know if he's got john one Okay, will you shut up? I'm just trying to like have a conversation. Like, I, well, I don't know if sin's really, Romans 3? Like, I mean, and I, I understand that, right? I mean, you, you need to know how to answer people and give, but, but listen, like I'm just, my question always is, are you trying to persuade people or are you trying to punish people? Honestly, right? I mean, you, you gotta do some serious heart work here because it's very easy to say, no, no, I'm doing this because I, well, well why, why is it coming on that tone? Why? Everything about your demeanor, your posture, the way that you lay before them, truth matters. They see that your heart aches that they don't know the saving work of Jesus. You can still say those things, but in a way that causes them to see the compassion and kindness of Jesus, right? And, and, and it, 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 so that's a great question for us to ask. I was actually thinking about that this week as um, I constantly run into that because I'm in a coffee shop writing and what do you do? I'm a pastor. Well, there we go, right? I mean, now, now I'm in a conversation they either run from or they want to dialogue into. So it's uh, something I was constantly thinking about. Am I just trying to like just punish them and show how much I know or am I genuinely caring for their soul and persuading them towards the living Christ? Now, now here's something we have to see though, which I think adds to this. This is huge. What is the harvest though? Because I feel like we, we picture the harvest as like just this big field and it's certain, it, it only really has to do with just the number of people like, go out into the harvest, right? Go out where you just see a bunch of people in this field and go get them into the kingdom of God. Now, in a sense, that's right, but you got to go to Joel, a book you love to read, Joel 3. Okay, he's a prophet. I'll put the text on the screen that, that gives us an, a window into this harvest. I think you see it in Luke 3 earlier. I think you see it in Revelation 14 later. Um, but here's what um, th this, this picture, the imagery Jesus gives is staggering. Luke 3, let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. 
multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. You can see this, day of the Lord is near continually here, but the harvest is the final judgment. I mean, every time you see in the Bible the harvest, I mean, you read Revelation 14, and it is, it is a terrifying text if you do not know Jesus, where you'll see the imagery of a sickle and him coming down and harvesting. You, you saw it earlier in Luke 3 where he, right, he has his winnowing fork and he separates the wheat from the chaff. So, so here's, here's what's happening. What drove Jesus to compassion is that he looked down the quarter of time and saw the final destination of people apart from the saving work of himself. Like, that's what drove him. He's going, there is a harvest of, do you see the harvest that is headed towards eternal damnation. I mean, do you have that picture in your head? I mean, he actually, that's where he looked. That's where he saw. So what drove Jesus in compassion was not just a number of people, not just a harvest like a field. He was thinking of the harvest. He was thinking of the end-all harvest when the just judge of the earth, which is himself, would do right by separating those who know him into eternal glory and those who don't know him into everlasting punishment. So, so, so here, this is incredible. As, as you look through all of this, do you hurt in your heart for those far from God headed towards a wrathful end? Like, how do you see people? Like, how do you see souls? Like, when you're, you're just out. Like, are they just there to serve you? They make much of you and do things for you? Or do you actually see them as a, as a living breathing person made in the image of God who apart from knowing what Jesus does and provides for them in the cross of Christ will have wrath poured out on them and will be separated from God in eternal torment. Like, like what, what, what causes you to see the harvest? Because then in your conversations, no one's just like a ticket item. Like they're not just a clock you punch or I'm just trying to you know, lump some verses on this guy. No, you genuinely are concerned about, well, how do I navigate his heart? I mean, where does he need to enter into conversation? I mean, how do we need to dialogue? I mean, is this a guy that needs a little bit more of the judgment, a little bit more of the grace? A little, I mean, does he know nothing about God? Do we need to talk about creation? Does he know about creation? He doesn't really know about the cross's work. Is he self-righteous, so I need to show him that? Or does he think he's really good, so I need to show him that? I mean, you have to actually see people and think. Not because you just want them as a ticket on it, because you see their ultimate end. You look down the quarter of time of people that you are around in your work, in your neighborhood, next to you as your neighbors, and you see their ultimate end. That's the harvest. And Jesus is going, man, we got, we got few laborers. We got to get more laborers out. Because there is that harvest that is awaiting. And so here, here's what I want to say too. If you are in this room and you do not know the saving truth of Jesus or you have never leaned into and trusted in the saving work of Jesus Christ, did you know that God himself aches for you to know him? <laughs> that, 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 that we see the compassion of God in Jesus and that his heart actually aches in the pit of his stomach that you would turn to him, that you would bow your knee and repent of sin and enjoy the fullness of life. He, he actually is burdened for that. I thought that was a, a phenomenal picture. That's, that's a whole sermon we don't have time for. Look back at 
at verse 2, though. Look at the other thing he says. He says, pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Who's the Lord of the harvest? This is so crazy. Jesus. So hold on a second. I'm going to pray to Jesus, who's also the one that will judge with his winnowing fork, So I'm going to pray, not just that God saves, but that God sends. And I'm going to pray to Jesus that he would actually send laborers to preserve and protect those who are heading to his judgment. Like This is amazing. In God's ordained, set-up system that he organized the world in, that this beautiful prayer life, as we seek him and beg him earnestly for God to save souls of men, we're actually pleading to the same one who will judge them if they don't turn to him. So we're saying, hey, Jesus, would you send out people to go, right? Romans 10, how can they hear without a preacher? Would you send people to go and preach and tell and be broken and burdened for those far from God to be brought near because you're going to judge them? The depth of this text is mind-boggling. <laughs> and then it's crazy because it says it's his harvest. Right? It says it is his harvest. Now, now, this is interesting. I mean, why not pray for those who just don't know Jesus to know Jesus? Right? Why, why, why not just pray that those who don't know the Lord know him? Now, that's a right thing to do. <laughs> don't get me wrong. That's, that's good and just and right. But, but you know what happens when you start praying that God would send people? You get caught up in it. Have you, have you ever done that? Where, where you, you start praying that God would give. He, he says, you pray for each other, this church. You start praying for people in this church that God would just burn in their hearts, that they would see lost people come to know the saving work of Jesus. You know what's going to happen in your heart? You're going to start growing for love for them. Your eyes are going to start being open. I mean, this was so insane to Chris and I. This is exactly what happened to us, my wife and I, when we were, you know, we were actually praying for God to send people to the Northeast, to New England, because we're like, we saw just the kind of, the area that kind of needed some more vibrant gospel-centered preaching churches. So we're, we're praying for months. Hey, God, would you send somebody? And then God's going, no, you. <laughs> and we're like, hold on a second. No, not me. I'm praying for other people, right? And as we prayed for that, we got caught up in that. And all of a sudden, we end up being the ones that go. How weird is that? I mean, so, so that, that's what happens is you pray earnestly that God would send laborers and not just that God would save people. You all of a sudden begin to see the world differently, see people differently. You get caught up in the mission. It's such a, a beautiful, beautiful reality. So as you start praying, and this is interesting, I've had this a lot. You can identify there's been someone I know who I'm like, man, God just needs to put someone in his life. Just tell him about Jesus. And the Lord's like, and I'm like, no, no, Lord, you need to put someone in his life. To, my neighbor, you need to send somebody to my neighbor. I mean, they, draw, they mow over my line and my grass. You need to send, and the whole time he's going, i put you next door. I mean, I've said this before. We, we want to go overseas and go across the, the water. We want to go next door. And that's just, that's just the bent of our hearts, right? There's something about that. And God's going, no, I've put you there. I've placed you there. And so here, here's what he says. We're going to see more of this roll out. He says, pray for people to go into this harvest, into this judgment day to save people, rescue people, more to be burdened from God. But now you, 72, here's some tips as you go out. He's going to give him verse 3. Go on your way. 
Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Okay, not the best recruiting statement, but let, let's get it. Carry no money bag, knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Okay, so Jesus says, hey guys, this is going to be great. I'm going to send you into the harvest. This, you're going to see people as those who are perishing apart from the saving work that is the kingdom of God. And as you go, listen, you're going to be like sheep among a bunch of wolves. Isn't that great? He's just saying, hey, this isn't going to be like Disney. You're not going to head out. You think you're like walking into Disney World and you're going to get just, everyone's going to love you. Everyone's going to like you. Everyone's going to receive your message. No, there are going to be people that say no thanks. Actually, there'll be more people that reject you than receive it. Did, did you not know that, that there's a remnant that will trust Jesus? That actually, guys, probably the majority of people that you share your faith with will reject it? But if anyone receives it, it's a miracle? So you leave rejoicing? Because you can't believe one person would, would see the glories of Christ and open, their eyes would be open to the realities that is Jesus taking their sin and gifting his righteousness? Does that... Just one person motivate you? It reminds me of, of Paul, right? What motivated Paul? Not that everybody would know Jesus, but man, I became all things by all possible means so that I might save some. Save some. That some might turn and trust in Jesus. So Jesus is great. I love it. He says, we're not supposed to be sectarians here. It's not, hey, get out there, put your fence up. Don't engage in culture. Don't be around non-believers. Everything's gonna rub off on you. He says, hey, you're going on as lambs, lambs among a wolf pack. Be wise, but get in it. Now, now use wisdom. If, I mean, if, if you're coming out of Alcoholics Anonymous and you go into the bar next day thinking that's your best mission field, that's just dumb, right? You want to go somewhere that's helpful for you. Use wisdom, but go. Get involved. Open your mouth. Spiritual people have spiritual conversations. I know, crazy. Crazy thought, Right? Guys, I've never had someone look at me and say, man, he didn't have a beer. I need Jesus. I mean, maybe that'll happen for you. But there needs to be articulation of the truth and, and love for them and walking with them and engaging in, in conversation. And Jesus shows that, that we engage culture. Now, you got these, these disciples have to be sitting here at this point going, okay, I know how this works out in the animal kingdom, right? Lambs with wolves, right? Not good. And yet, Jesus, there's something about the meekness of lambs following their shepherd, obeying their shepherd. We trust Jesus. Our trust is in our shepherd. Our trust is in what he is calling and commanding us and asking us to do because it's his work going through us. And this is why Jesus just tells them what he already told them in verse 12, beginning of chapter nine. He's teaching them contentment. He's teaching them trust. Hey, don't take any money. You don't need any money. You're not trying to get rich off this, right? I'll provide for you. Don't take extra sandals. Wear the ones on your feet. I'll care for you. I'll provide for you. He's just showing the same message he showed in the beginning of chapter 9. And by the way, I love this. Stay focused on the mission. Don't say hi to anybody on the road. That sounds so mean and negative. He's not being mean. The, the classic ancient Near East greeting was a fanfare. You saying hi to someone on the road, you ended up in their house for a long meal. Okay, so he's going, hey, stay focused on the mission. Don't get distracted. You're not here to get a bunch of friends. Okay, that's, that's good. But this mission is a blitz through Galilee to, to grab people who will be perishing in the harvest. Okay, so, so don't, don't try to spend all your time having these side meals. Stay fixed on the mission. Don't get distracted. I think it was particular for this. 
Verse 5, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Jesus gives really good wisdom. (laughs) Remember, I'm sending you out for mission not to see who's your best friend, so find the person of peace. Find the one who's open. Find the low-hanging fruit. Find those who are engaged. Find those who you come to them and you proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, that it's near, that the king is here, that he's gonna offer provision for your sin if you repent and turn to him, that he will rescue you from everlasting torment and separation from God. And if there's interest there, if there's engagement there, spend time there. But there's gonna be others that, that reject you and then move on. But there will be some where there is a person of peace. It's this idea. You know, Jesus keeps saying, don't throw your pearls before swine. I mean, that's another example. Don't keep giving someone something that's precious who doesn't get that it's precious. Like, don't just spend, listen, there are people you know where, where you just constantly berate them. And listen, it's not, that's just not gonna be helpful in the end for some people. They know the truth, you've shared the truth. Don't just keep throwing the pearls, but just move on and pray for them. We talked about how a couple weeks ago there was a prayer and information issue. Some of you guys, all you do is spit stuff and never pray for people. Some of you guys, all you do is pray for people and never open your mouth. Kind of discern what that looks like for people in your life. And then he says, hey, if you find a person of peace, set up shop there, form friendship, foster fellowship. And don't feel guilty if they feed you or provide for you. The labor's worth his wages saying it's okay to receive support for preaching the gospel. You can look at 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Timothy 5, Philippians 4, other places where the, the gospel is being preached and it's right and good for the people doing that to be supported in that work. So hey, it's okay if they want to provide for you and give to you and feed you. And then Jesus moves to the towns, the bigger places. We're going into just different houses. Now it's the city, the town, verse 8. Whenever you enter a city or a town and they receive you, eat what is before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So you may show up to a town and the whole town is open to the kingdom of God. Wouldn't that be a mercy? He goes, so, so if you come to a whole town, there's a, there's a whole group of people that's open to the kingdom of God, open to the gospel of Jesus Christ, Go ahead and stay there and eat whatever they give you. Hold on, be a good witness. Don't be stingy. If you want your steak rare and they give it to you well, eat it well, okay? Don't hand it back. Don't send it back to the cook. Like you, you be a good home-based witness. You be someone who has a person of integrity. You sit there because you're not there to serve you. You're there to serve the advancement of the gospel. So let's keep this mission moving forward and heal the sick. It's gonna validate your message. Remember, we have the word of God that validates all that God has said and done. We have them sent out with these gifts to raise the dead to life and cast out demons and heal the sick. Why? To validate that they are an extension of the very one who is the Messiah. So do that. That'll validate all that you are saying and sharing. And here's their message. The kingdom of God is near to you. That's their message and that's our message, is it not? that a king has come and a king will return again. It's near, right? 
Now here in this context, this is like the, the, the kingdom's literally near because the king himself is there in all his fullness in the incarnation. Okay, he's actually walking as people. He's in human flesh. The divine son of God is also full humanity and he is walking, breathing, living, doing ministry, performing acts. He will ultimately go to a cross. The king is here. The kingdom has arrived. The kingdom is near to you. Turn to him now. Enter into this kingdom. It's for your taking. There can be peace with God. I mean, that's why I think there's a lot of language about peace. Peace to this house, right? I mean, we're enemies of God before Jesus takes the wrath that was due us as an enemy of God in our sin and makes peace with God. We become friends with God, not just friends. We become a son and a daughter. Amazing, amazing truth. And I love that, I love that phrase, the kingdom of God has come near to you. You know, if you read Acts 17, there's a similar thought where he's talking to the Greeks, hard group of people, and he gets up and says, basically, that God has predetermined exactly where you would live, work, be, for the amount of time you would work, live, be, so that people might see God and find him. Some of you hate your job. You hate your neighborhood. Or you don't like this area and I'm telling you that God in his goodness has sovereignly placed you and put you for the season you'll be there so that you would rub shoulders with people who do not love the God that you love, do not serve the God that you serve so that you might be an ambassador of reconciliation so you might warm their hearts to the living God in a way that is uniquely wired for you. And I love that because why is the kingdom of God near? Because you're there. Why was the kingdom of God near to them? Because they were there telling them this morning, if you don't know Jesus, have not trusted in Jesus for the saving nature and work of your sin, listen, the kingdom of God is near to you because you're here. That's God in his mercy calling you, wooing you, opening up your eyes, saying, hey, I'm putting before you the kingdom of God. I'm making it near to you right now. So that you might turn and repent and trust in a good, gracious, benevolent, eternal God that is good in all that he does. He is perfectly just in all that he does. He's perfectly loving in all that he does. He's perfectly wise in all that he does. It's a perfect kingdom with a perfect king. And, and he's calling all of us weekly into that as we're here. So you want to know why the kingdom of God is not far off to your neighbors? Because you're there. You want to know why the kingdom of God isn't far off in your hobbies, maybe where you're around specific people? Because you're there. You want to know why the kingdom of God is not far off in where you work? Because you guessed it, you're there. You're there. He didn't ask, he would have told somebody else to do it. He would have grabbed somebody else. But you're there. The kingdom of God is near. Now let me just say something I believe is important. Um, some of us feel so discouraged because we think, I'm terrified, Mike. Man, my, my neighbor's the angry atheist. And if I, if I open my mouth to them, they're going to say something I don't know how to answer. I mean, I don't know where Noah's Ark is, right? Like, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know exact carbon dating. I don't, I, don't, I don't know all this stuff. I don't know. Is it in Israel? I saw National Geographic the other day with some. I don't know. And, and you know what Paul said? When he came into the Corinthians, he said, I didn't come with you a wise or persuasive speech. I came with you with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. What did he do? He just preached Christ and him crucified, and it was Jesus who drew men to himself. So here's the best thing you and I can do. 
I'm in this, this with you. It's just lose confidence in you and gain confidence in him. That's all I can say. And you know what one of the best things to say when you're asked something that you don't know the answer to? I don't know. Rocket science, right? If someone asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, you know a great answer is, I don't know. I know some of you got to be humbled by that because you think you have to know every last apologetic thing out there. Your systematic has to be in all A's before you can open your mouth. I'm telling you, listen, don't be discouraged by that. I have grown intellectually more in my faith by opening my mouth and having to answer questions saying, I don't know, than going to find answers and then being strengthened in my answers because the truth will do its work. You don't have to fear truth falling out on you. Okay, so, so someone asks you a question, be a good Christian and say, you know what, that's a phenomenal question. I have no idea. And just take a good dose of humility and swallow the pill. <laughs> and not, don't, please don't make up an answer because then that's crazy. I got people coming to me going, yeah, I asked him and I told him this. I was like, oh, dear Lord, you told him, and I love you, but I mean, you know what I mean? Like, let's, let's, let's at least engage in that and talk first before you go launching these answers. It's better to say, hey, I don't know, you know, why don't you come to church with me Sunday? Let's dialogue about this. Or, hey, what, you know, let me go research that. Or let me look into that. Or I'll read one of your books. And you read one of mine. And I, I found so much fruit in that. I found so much growth and strengthening in what I believe is the truth through me knowing things after I didn't know them. Being able to say, I'll tell you, when, when, when I'm out as a pastor and, and someone asks me a question that I don't know, you don't think that's in, inwardly, I, you think I want to admit that? Don't you think that would like derail all my creds? No, it actually wins their heart more. And then you start having honest conversation. You're not Jesus. There's only one. He knows all things. No one else will. But people that know more, you're not Tim Keller. You're not, you put in your list of your guy. You're not them. You're probably never going to be them. But let's learn. Let's grow. Let's walk. Right? Let's learn to have love for people, right? We just simply need the courage to enter into conversation because it is confidence in the shepherd, not in us as sheep, right? So, so here, here's the uh, other piece, and this is where it gets weighty. There, there's, there's peace for those who repent of sin and, and trust Jesus. Here's the other side, verse 10. But whether you enter a town, they do not receive you. Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your own town that clings to our feet will wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be even more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Receiving the truth, right? You hearing the truth, hearing that God is good, God is benevolent, God is gracious, God is kind, primarily in the person and work of his son, taking your sin, bearing the wrath for you, gifting you righteousness. You hear the good peacemaking work of Jesus. And you receive that. You trust in that. There's peace for you, right? There's everlasting joy. Rejection of that brings punishment. And here specifically, he's telling them, when people reject the truth, make sure you tell them the whole truth. That's not easy. We lovingly warn. I'm not talking about in bitter anger, you're going to hell. I am saying, you can lovingly, appropriately say, the impending consequence for rejecting this is eternal separation from the living God. In eternal torment. That is real. That is biblical. That is right. 
He is that just. He is that holy. Like you have to, that's what he's getting at. He's going, hey, if people reject this, you've got to be loving enough to warn them and say, hey, here's the consequences for you rejecting this truth. There's no peace for you. There won't be peace for you. There will only be punishment for you. And, and, and we don't condemn people, but we warn people of impending condemnation. There was a guy, I was working at, in Ridgewood, a coffee shop I like to go to to write, and there was a guy I was seeing a good amount in there, and then eventually we started engaging in some conversation. He was interested in some of the stuff that I was writing, so I would kind of tell him, you know, the sermon this week's on this and this and this, and, and, uh, and then eventually, a couple weeks ago, we, we got in a conversation about hell, right? He's always got to get there, because I don't believe in a God who sends people to hell. So here's, here's the, the, the crossroad, and, and I remember feeling, I remember just confession of your pastor. I remember feeling in my stomach, I don't know if I can tell him that that's really true. Like, there's got to be a way I can phrase this or say this. Or, so he outright, we're meeting one time, and he says, hey, so you're telling me that that person, right, he's pointing at him, going, don't point. Don't, don't draw attention, right? I mean, come on, man, we're having a one-on-one right now. Let's, let's easy, right? I mean, you see people do that, that happens, right? He goes, you're telling me that person right there, that, that per, did just innocent per, well, that's your first problem. We're not going to get into that. That innocent person that's just sitting there by themselves, right now, that if he does not throw himself on this Jesus, he's going to hell. I could just feel in my stomach wanting to say, I know his heart, right? Wanting, I mean, I, I, I remember thinking so, and I just said, yes, yes, that's the truth. Like, I can't, I can't, I can't withhold the truth of the Im- impending nature of what that means. Like, if you choose to reject this, yes, dust is against you. It's off your feet. It's not good. And this is why he says and relates here, and we're actually going to see more of this after Easter, which is weighty. He talks about Sodom. And he says, remember Sodom? Sodom was this wicked city, rampant, vile. I mean, even the word Sodom comes from the most vile, wicked activity you can perform. You got this guy named Lot that went in to, to tell them to, to turn to God. He's a gracious God. He's a good God. They, they rejected him. And one of the most intense fires came down and consumed and destroyed that city. And Jesus says, hey, remember Sodom? If you sit and hear the good news of Jesus and hear the gospel of the kingdom and continue to reject it, your punishment will be worse than if you never heard it at all. Jesus said it. I didn't say it. Like, like, if you're in this room and, and you keep coming and hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and you keep rejecting it and you keep running to your sin and you keep rejecting Jesus and you keep suppressing the truth, did you know that the day of judgment is actually going to be worse for you? And he's going to get into this after Easter. He's going to list out cities. But, but here's what's wonderful. He says, nevertheless, the kingdom's near. Like, you can turn and repent now. Like, you don't have to wait for that. You don't have to keep suppressing the truth, rejecting it. You can turn and repent. The kingdom of God is laid before you. God's good, kind character is laid before you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Turn to him now. 
But he's showing the longer you keep hearing the good news of the gospel and you keep suppressing it, did you know you're actually building up for yourself greater accountability on the day of judgment? That is so terrifying. So terrifying. And Jesus just lays it out. I love how honest Jesus is. He's ultimately kind, ultimately just in all that he does. Ultimately right in all that he says. And he just rolls it out. You will be held accountable eternally for your rejection of the gospel. And however that looks, time-wise, length-wise, let me just mention something here because I I think it's relevant. We're going to talk a little bit more in two weeks about God's justice, hell, all that good stuff, all that exciting Palm Sunday, guys. Welcome. Um, here, here's is the thing. A lot of people say, well, I can't believe in a God of the Bible who loves and also punishes. Because that's like counterintuitive. That can't work together. Right? Like, like, I believe in a God who's loving. And I believe in a God that's so loving that that's kind of like the universal attribute of all beliefs is that he loves people. And he lets people pretty much do whatever they want because he's exhibiting love. Now here's, here's the problem. Here's the problem, is you are in your head trying to think of a God who is love, right? You've got that idea, but did you know outside of the Bible, there is no belief system, historical, textual, religious, anything that points to a God of actual, true, personal, affectionate love? So even by you trying to understand God being loving, you can't get that outside the scriptures. Because you've got Buddhism, right? I mean, that, that, that encourages service to others, right? But it does not encourage the actual love in being that of the God of his people who gives it to them. You've got, you know, uh, you've got Muslim belief, which is a lot about kindness and, and, and giving and all these other things, but you don't have anything where God created the world out of delight, God created the world out of love, that he actually loves his people with an intimate love like a spouse. You don't have that. Right, you, you've got actually most ancient pagan religious belief systems are that gods basically had their way, made things out of opposing forces and violent battles. Not a God who unwithheld says, hey, I'm going to make a world, I'm going to create a people out of love and delight who are made in my image. You don't have that. So I always want to say, where do you even come up with that you believe in a God of love? You can't even think of a God being love unless he's the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible is so loving and perfectly just in all that he does. Because he's so holy, he can't let anything under him happen without his right judgment. So you have a perfectly wise, perfectly loving, perfectly just, perfectly everything God who owns his kingdom that you can enter into. What a privilege. Turn to that God. Turn to the God made flesh in Jesus who did it for you. It's just, it's just beautiful here. Scriptures say that God is a God of love and a God of judgment. And he will make all things right. He restrains evil, restrains wickedness even now. It's his kindness. It's his, his love. Let, let me... Let me close with this. The the message here of these 72, I love it. They're going out saying the kingdom of God is near. (laughs) So I don't know if you're in the kingdom of God or you're not in the kingdom of God, but but here's what's beautiful about, about this kingdom. And I've mentioned this. This kingdom of God is the only kingdom that has a king who's perfect in all that he does. 
that he perfectly knows how to govern his people. He perfectly knows how to lead them the deepest amount of joy. He perfectly knows how to forgive them of their sin. He perfectly knows how to discipline and deal with their wanderings. He perfectly knows how to invade the spaces of our life to reveal the idols inside of us that we want and we don't like for our greater joy in him, greater satisfaction in him. He knows how to lift your eyes to see more of his glory. He knows how to do all those things. He's an absolutely perfect king. And the only way you can enter into this kingdom, the only way any of us entered into the kingdom of God is when you got to the door of the kingdom and you took your own self-submission, self-glory, self-worship, and you laid it at the door. Right? You realize, okay, living for me is suicide, it's deceit, it's destructive, it's damning, it's, it's empty, it's vain. You came to the end of worshiping yourself because you realize, one, you're a terrible God. So you realize, wow, I can't run my life right. I keep running after things that don't satisfy. I keep losing sight of what's before me. So you continue to walk in that. Eventually, you hear the good saving work of Jesus and you throw down your self-worth, your self-worthiness, all that you've done to build yourself up thinking you can stand before a God if he exists on the day of judgment. You realize, I need a champion in my place, so I'll trust in him. And now you are totally submitted to a perfectly wise, eternally gracious, benevolent father. You've got the best end of the deal, right? I mean, see, so much we're like, hey, enter the kingdom of God because you kind of get the superficial joy. Or so. No, no, listen. You're entering into the kingdom of God because there are only two kingdoms you can live in, right? I mean, Colossians will say you either live in the kingdom of darkness or you live in the kingdom of light, and that's the kingdom of God's son, and that's the kingdom of God. So you're either going to be enslaved to sin or you're going to be a slave to righteousness, which is Jesus. And here's the thing. Some of you guys think that you're free living in the kingdom of darkness. Did you know that you have no freedom but to sin? Like, like it's actually liberating when you enter the doors of the kingdom of God. Because he frees you from sin. He frees you from its enslavement. He enables you to live as you were wired which is to worship and give glory to his name. So you no longer have a ceiling on your life. It's an open air auditorium where joy keeps increasing because you're in the kingdom of God. And you've entered in there because you laid down your self-rights and your own goals and your own ambitions and said, I'm submitted to this good, right, benevolent, gracious king God who has a perfect kingdom and is a perfect king who rules and reigns. Would you enter that this morning? Would you repent of sin and humble yourself and see him as good, right, kind, gracious, merciful, and that if you reject that and slam the door on the kingdom of God, that he will, in the end, bring about a harvest that is in judgment and is wrath-giving and is eternally one of torment. But he's saying to you today, the kingdom of God is near. Some of you, you're Christians, and you need to, again, lean into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is near. He's a good gracious God. He is a perfect king with a perfect kingdom. Let's ask him to help us. God, thank you that you are a God who gives us freedom in the cross, true freedom. Thank you that you've delivered us, your word says, from the kingdom of darkness. That God, there was no freedom there. We didn't have freedom to enjoy you and to find pleasure in the maker of, it all, th- of all things. We were limited in our enslavement. God, you freed us. Thank you that we can live in a kingdom and a future kingdom free of pain, suffering, sin, death, and most importantly, experience the fullness 
of it all with you, one with God, God with man. Until then, would you, would you have us go and have eyes that are open to those around us? We'd be driven by compassion, not just what we know. We'd be about the mission and not about our own self-achievements or self-gain. Would you see that we are where we are by your providence and sovereignty because the kingdom of God is near? God, as we remember your broken body and shed blood on the cross, accomplishing for us, rescuing into this kingdom, would we worship you as we remember that? God, would you save some this morning? Would some repent of sin and turn to Christ? God, would you give us courage in you and not in us? Confidence in you and not in us. It's for your beautiful name we pray. Amen.